Good morning, everyone. I'm going to be reading John 21, verses 15 to 17. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Thanks, Tiffany. Let me pray for us as we go into the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for even some of the things we heard from some of our brothers and sisters here. Stories of celebration, of praise, of thanksgiving, and even sharing of uh, heartbreaking, of, of loss. Yet, Lord, even in the midst of that, that you are faithful. But we pray for your comfort. We pray even today for those who are struggling in this room, maybe who are struggling with, with going on one more day. Remind us, Lord, of your sufficiency. Help us, Lord, to trust in you. Lord, we also remember this day and this weekend, uh, the courage of people who've gone before us, like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We remember, Lord, sacrifices that have been made for your kingdom's work, for justice, even to the point of giving lives. Thank you for inspirations like that. Thank you, Lord, that you remind us that change can come even in one generation. Things that were seemed impossible, Lord. And you call every one of us to be part of that, to give the little that we have. So would you remind us even that, that Lord, that in you, um, you can change things that we consider unchangeable. So we thank you for Dr. King. We thank you for others who've given their lives, Lord, and who continue to fight the good fight and help us to join alongside as we trust you. So help us in your word this morning, God. Holy Spirit, take these words that can be just ancient textbooks and make it alive, flowing with your spirit, words of life. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen, amen. Oh, that was good. That ministered to my soul to hear from different folks. And we're, um, as we introduced last week, we're starting this new series today called Who We Are. And, and the essence of this series for the next month and a half or so is we're looking at some of the different connections that form and shape who we are. And, and we talk about this a lot in our church that we are relational people. So when we talk about relationship, it's not something apart from who we are. It is actually defining who we are. So we're going to be looking at different layers of that each week. Um, just for some of you to be aware, a few, and with the calendar's up. Um, we have the image on some of our social media sites. So I would encourage you to check out some of the weeks when we talk about uh, things like singlehood, marriage, for instance. Some of the subject matter might be a little bit more mature. So if you've got little ones and you prefer to make some arrangements, please know that ahead of time. But we're going to try to be pretty real as we get into some of these things and remind, remind ourselves that the church should be the safest place to talk about real life issues. Um, but today we're starting with God. When we talk about these connections, when we talk about relationship, today we start with God because ultimately when we consider, and we're going to look at a lot of different layers of what relationships look like, what connections look like, ultimately our belief here at the village is that um, the relationship God establishes with his people, that is the crux from everything else that we, that we would be formed for one another. 
And, and in my study, and as we look at the scripture, we have to recognize that the relationship that God has determined with the people he calls his own, it's based out of love. God is love. I mean, that sounds so trite, but it's so true. God is love. Um, famous theologian Jonathan Edwards, he said, love is not just an attribute of God. It is the essence of God. God is love. So we want to hit on that today. And we're going to do that. We're going to look at a story from the life of this one man, Peter, one of the original disciples, followers of Christ. And we're going to do some flashbacks too. But first, we're going to start kind of near the end of Jesus' relation with this guy, Peter, by looking at John chapter 21, as Tiffany read for us. John 21, 50. Let me read that again. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And it's really an interesting back and forth between Jesus, the, the master, the teacher, and his follower. And, and again, everyone's equally loved in God's sight, but God's got different levels of how he's training. And Peter was like in the top three. He was in the top tier. Like when Jesus had to go do some big ministry, he would bring a few, James, John, and Peter. But it's interesting, this back and forth, it's almost like Jesus is messing with him. And we'll give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. No, he's God incarnate, so he's always good. But if you were just observing this with someone else, you're like, man, that's kind of mean. He asked him, do you love me? He said yes, and you keep pressing into it. And so it's almost like he's messing with him. And Peter, obviously, by the end, he's stung by this conversation. He's like, this stinks. You know I love you. Why you got to keep asking me? You know I love you. But to get some context into perhaps what's, what's guiding this, let's look back. And we're going to first look at Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Not that, not that um, in, far in the past from where we are. Mark chapter 14, starting verse 27. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So Jesus is having his final time with his followers, and he's giving them some instructions. In the moments and and the days that are leading up to this eventual arrest, he's prepping them. And this is a a great example of the kind of guy that Peter was. And and our brother Rob uh, dug into this a little deeper last Sunday. But Peter was the kind of guy who wore everything on his sleeve. Like, you did not have to have probably much ambiguity when you looked at Peter. He told you what he thought. He had no filter. He got, like, diary of the mouth. Kind of has to come out. But, but we, we even see that Peter wasn't all talk. Some people all talk and not much action. Peter was talk, but he also was a man of action. He's willing through to follow, follow through with what some of the claims he made to follow Jesus, defend him. We see that even uh, later on with the event of Jesus' arrest. That Peter was there, pulled out his sword, and said, yo, I said I'm going to fight with you. I'm going to go down with you. And, and he attacks one of the guards. But Peter, I mean, poor Peter, he can't even get that right. He slices off the guy's ear. And Jesus, I mean, he fixes it, so it's all good. But, I mean, he can't even get it right. But you cannot doubt his passion. And some of you can identify with Peter. You're like, yeah, I got heart like that. Um, but things take an interesting turn. Jesus is arrested. He's taken away. 
for this trial. And we find that all the other disciples, they've all scattered away as Jesus had promised. But Peter, for whatever reason, actually has some courage and he sticks around. He's going to see what happens to Jesus. And he tries to get as close to the action as he can. So he's there witnessing this mockery of a trial. He's trying not to be too conspicuous because at this point it probably does not behoove him to be known as a Jesus follower. So we read what happens in verse 66 of Mark chapter 14. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He broke down and wept. Miserable time to be this guy, Peter. I mean, I don't know exactly what he was experiencing, what he was feeling, because it doesn't describe it in the scriptures, but it's probably similar to what you or I might have experienced had we gone through that kind of experience of denying Christ. I mean, maybe there's some frustration that Jesus' words came true. Don't you hate those know-it-alls that tell you, don't do that because this is what's going to happen, and and you're like, nah, nah, and it does. Maybe there's frustration. Maybe there's embarrassment, shame, that he's going to be found out as someone who had so boldly claimed he's going to follow Jesus to the end, and then he denied him. Maybe there's just a heavy dose of failure, and I know we're all like high achievers here, so none of us has ever struggled with failure before, but um, try to imagine Maybe there's heavy failure that he's devoted his whole life to following this Jesus. I mean, he's left his business, lucrative fishing. He's left his family. He's given up his whole life to serve this one who he himself, with his words, he he said, you are the Christ. He knew that this was the chosen one of God. And and now he's blown it. Now he's blown it. Or, Or maybe for Peter, the biggest hurt was... That he genuinely, and let's give him the benefit of the doubt, he genuinely wanted to do his best to follow Jesus. I don't think he was just paying lip service. He wanted to be faithful, but he encountered this sobering reality that his best was not good enough. In fact, all the best of his efforts, what it led to was the heaviest guilt, shame, and despair he had ever experienced in his life. So imagine Peter... He, he's faced with his sin. He, he pictures the eyes of Jesus. He thinks about the words of Jesus. He remembers his denial of Jesus. He probably didn't need anyone's help to remind him how much he had sinned, how much he had fallen short of who he should be. And, and worse than any punishment that could have come from the Roman government... More than any pain or sting of a Roman soldier's whip was this crippling condemnation of the memories of his own soul. And in the midst of that, in the midst of that, something amazing, something pretty crazy happens, and you can read further. I would encourage it. It's all open source, right? Jesus, he dies on the cross. That, that's pretty essential. He dies on the cross, but, but even along with that, he's, only, he's in the tomb for a few days, and we read that he rises from the grave. 
miraculously conquers sin and death, and Jesus rises from the grave. Glory, right? Glory. The God of this universe cannot be contained within death and suffering. He rises from the grave. Sin no longer reigns. But in Peter's life, we don't know what exactly is going on because he's heard about this. We know that he hears about it because as wonderful as the resurrection is, I mean, Peter's still got to live with what he's done. You know, as, as wonderful as Peter's still got to live with himself. And it's fascinating because we know that Jesus died for the sin and the brokenness of all humankind, including Peter. He's risen from the dead. He's won victory over death. But for Peter, even knowing all that's happened here with Jesus, there still needs to be this open, honest encounter with Jesus to set things straight. And that's what we started in John 21. And let me read that again in that kind of context, and maybe it means even a little more. John chapter 21. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. What do Jesus' questions here mean? I mean, there's different interpretations, but I, I think most likely Jesus is asking Peter, yo, dude, you still love me more than all these other guys do? Because remember, remember his emphatic declaration that we looked at before, right? Even though they all fall away, I will not. He was like, boom. Even though all these suckers are going to fall away and they're all going to deny you, they're all going to run away. Yo, yo, I'm going to be there all the way till the end. So Jesus, when he keeps asking, so do you, do you love me? He's saying, you love me like that? You love me more than all of them? And with each of these three questions for Peter... It's probably a painful reminder of each of his three denials. Every time when he said, I don't even know him. I, no, I'm not with him. I, I don't know that Jesus. Every sin that Peter has had to wrestle with in his shame, in his guilt, his heartache. Each denial bringing to the surface another way that he fell short of who he wanted to be. And for Peter... He had to learn a very valuable lesson about the spiritual journey in Christ that it was actually not ultimately about how devoted he was to Christ. It, it wasn't even about how much he would live for God or die for, die for him or even all that he would do in his name. Rather, through Peter's denials of Christ, he had to learn personally that his own efforts would never be enough. What he can do, as powerfully declarative as it might have been, it could never be enough. And in the face of his own inability, Peter learned the gracious love of God. In his deepest failures, in the moments of his deepest denials, Peter learned the gracious love of God that this Jesus knew his failures even before he committed them. Because he told him you'd fail. Even before he committed them, this Jesus knew he, how he was going to get jacked up, and yet he reinstated him. He forgave him of his sin, and he showed him that this faith 
was ultimately not going to be about how faithful Peter was to Jesus. It was always going to be about how faithful Jesus is to Peter. And I think for us, as we think about relationship with God, just like Jesus forced Peter to confront his failure, each of us, we need to have an honest assessment of our sin before God as well. And, and I'm, I'm talking about myself, but you can include yourself in this conversation. But I think so often we make excuses for our sin as if we're surprised that we sin. You know, we make excuses, we justify ourselves. I mean, maybe we'll make a bad decision and we'll say things like, well, that's just who I am. Or, or maybe we lose our temper and we say, wow, people are so dumb. Or maybe we fall to temptation and we say, well, no one's perfect. And, and the thing is, when we excuse ourselves in these ways and others, we're justifying our sin. We're defending our sin. We're excusing our sin. We're basically saying, well, yeah, I messed up, but it's my personality or, or it's my family background that made me do that. I, you can't blame me. I come from a jacked up family history. Or, or we're saying, yeah, you know, I lost my temper because it's other people are so dumb. If people would just get their act together, I wouldn't get so mad. And we deflect. Or, or we say, uh, you know what? Yeah, you know, I fell to temptation, but you don't understand the stress I'm under in my life. I've got so many pressures from work and family. Yeah, I fell to that temptation, but it's because of all these other things that are pressing in on me. This isn't really me. And, and I think behind any, you know, any kind of justification, there's two, kind of two misunderstandings that we have about ourselves. When we, when we justify our sin, one misunderstanding, we probably think too highly of ourselves. We probably think too highly of ourselves. And what it's saying is we don't really believe the depths of our sin and brokenness before God. We don't really think we're all that sinful or messed up. But, but we need to remember sin it doesn't just make our life a little harder. It doesn't just put us into bad situations. The Bible says that sin actually separates us from God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God from Romans chapter 3. So we don't actually believe we're as sinful as maybe we are. And number two, I think another misunderstanding, we think we have the power to change ourselves. We think we have the power to change ourselves. That, that almost this idea that if I just resolve to work harder at this, then something will change. That if I just try harder, if I get more discipline, then I'll fix the problem. But this is tied back to that first misunderstanding is that we have to realize the problem is actually much bigger than anything we can try to do to fix it. This is not an issue of better self-control or more discipline. It's saying, when we say this, we're basically saying, I don't really believe I'm in that much of need. And, and I, want, I, I say all this not to beat you down, but I want to encourage you. If you're here, and if any of you, if you're frustrated in your inability to change, and again, it's hard for me to imagine with a holy group like this, but some of you, maybe, maybe for some of you, you're frustrated that you've got areas of your life you genuinely want to see different. You want your relationships to be different. You want the way you approach money to be different. You want your patience to be better. You want to have better discipline. You wish you were more pure in your thoughts, whatever it might be. But you look at yourself and you're frustrated because you're not able to change. And, I'm, and when I say change, I'm not just talking about better modifying our behavior, like just having a better service, like genuine desire, motive kind of change. I'm going to say that the first step 
to that kind of change is to take responsibility for our sin rather than making excuses for our sin. The first step to real change, instead of making excuses for why we sin, own it and say, yup, that's me. That's me. Because freedom comes from acknowledging that we fall short. Freedom comes from acknowledging that we fall short. For some of us, and we're not going to do a whole list here, right? Because you're going to think I'm talking about you when I'm not really talking about you. I'm just talking about you. Some of us, our sin is just very obvious in scope. And we don't have to do a whole list, but we are just blatantly, we know what God says in his word and we're blatantly disobeying it, whatever it might be. So that, that's kind of on its own. But I think for others of us, our sin might be a little bit more subtle. Our sin might not be a very clear, oh, here's the Ten Commandments, you broke nine out of ten. It might be a little more subtle. We might actually look really moral. We might look like we got our stuff together. Any, any you know, joke you public might look at you and say, oh, you know, that's a model citizen. They're, they're doing what they need to do. But what I would suggest if you fall more into that side, sometimes we use our morality to justify our sin. Sometimes our morality justifies us. What I mean by that, maybe a couple of examples might help to show what that means. Some of us, anyone in this room might look at you and say, that's how I want to spend my money. Wow, that person, they know how to handle finances. They are not, they're not in debt. They spend wisely. They save. They're actually, and and it, from the outside, might look very moral. Might look like a very good person when it comes to money. But not recognizing that maybe deeper, and this is not everyone like that, obviously, but maybe deeper, um, we're in like slavery to our money. Like we are so consumed with having to be in control of our savings. We're so consumed with making sure we don't spend improperly because it's revealing that maybe deeper, we just don't trust God. We're not able to be generous with it. Like we get mad when we have to be generous because it's ours. And perhaps for some people in that situation, though on the outside, fully admirable, it's revealing a deeper inability to trust God, even with his gifts of finances or wealth. And to say, God, this is actually all yours. This is not mine. You're giving it to me to use and to bless and to be generous, but it's actually all yours. Maybe for others of us, like you, someone will look at you and say, wow, that is a woman of discipline. Wow, she gets up at like five in the morning to exercise. She like eats her right food every day, never doubts whether she should have kale, like every day, like does their devotionals like twice a day, you know, they read every book on how they need to do it. Wow, they are in such control of their life. And from the outside, we're like, wow, so moral. I wish I could be like that person. And, and things that definitely emulate, but sometimes I've noticed that what it's revealing on the inside is like this control need. Like, if I'm not in control of my life, I start to get upset. If someone calls me and upsets my schedule, I get mad. <laughs> because for me, what I worship is having to be in control of things, revealing that ultimately I don't believe God is in control of my life. So it, it's, it can be a lot more subtle, but sin can still be there. So it might be very blatant or it might be very subtle. All to say, whatever sin might look like for any one of us, the reason that some of us do not experience the deep love of God is that our sin doesn't really grieve us. It doesn't. Our sin doesn't really bother us that much. Rather than this destructive thing in our lives that, that we would hope to be rid of, we've just grown accustomed to his presence, like a big mole on your face. We're like, well, it's just there. 
And you look at it more every day, well, it's still there. But I want to suggest that sin affects your relationship with God. Even if you're fully a Christian, forgiven of your sin, unrepentant sin still affects our relationship with God. And one of the ways that you know it affects our relationship with God is it affects our relationship with other people. And I'll do one of the things where I share about myself and make myself look horrible because that always makes you feel good, right? Um, Amen, right? Um, You know, I, I, I love my kids. I love them to death. I mean, with my wife and my kids, they're, I mean, they're my favorite people. <laughs> That'd probably be bad if I said they're like, hey, they're kind of on the list. They're my favorite people. I can genuinely say that. But I, even this week, we had, we had one of those instances where the kids are just not doing what they're supposed to do in the morning, getting ready for school. And I unloaded on them, like, like to the point where a neighbor would like might be maybe call the authorities because I was that loud. And you know I'm loud already. So when I emphasize something, it gets really loud. And I'm like yelling and ah, you know, I'm so mad. And, you know, I could tell that they were pretty ticked off because I dropped them off to school. They didn't even say bye to me. They just went in, right? <laughs> but we try to process things. We try to process things. And, and, and the next, um, next time we were together, I wanted them to know some of the reasons why I look like I'm getting mad is because you've been bad. <laughs> you've been horrible. <laughs> Big stinkers, Right. And you need some discipline. Some of the times, it's my love for you. That's why I look like I'm mad. But then I had to throw this in because I couldn't say that with a straight face. I said, but you guys know, sometimes when I get really mad like that, it's because I'm a sinner. And and you need to forgive me. Or can you forgive me? Because sometimes when I get really mad like that, it's not that anything you're doing. I mean, you're always sinners. (laughs) But sometimes, it's that I I have a temper issue. Sometimes I have a control issue, and I've got somewhere to go, and they're holding me up. And I'm so mad that I'll take it out on them because they're smaller than me. That's the reality of it. So in our family, we try to model the sense of sin will affect our relationship with one another, and let's be honest, and let's confess that. But the main point, there is sin. And sin will affect how you view God. It won't affect how God loves you. But it may affect how you receive God's love, but it may also manifest in how you relate to others. And I think we all see that. If you're there, like Peter did, and and this is just such the good news, right? Like Peter did, can I welcome you to repent? Repent is just a fancy word to say, acknowledge that you are a sinner. Not just generally, like acknowledge real ways you've sinned. Not just, oh, Lord, forgive me the sinner. Greater sinner. No. Oh, God, here's how I jacked up Tuesday morning. Oh, man, Tuesday night. I don't even remember that because it was so bad. Lord, remind me how you forgive me of that sin. Remind me how Christ died even for that, and I am cleansed in him. But, Lord, I did it. Just like Peter, repent and come to experience why we call this good news. That in the face of crushing despair, because if you look at your sin right, it should crush you. It should crush you. Just like I am crushed with the idea, how could I treat my kids who I love so much and be so bad to them in a moment of anger? Just like that crushes me in the same way to recognize my sin should crush me when I recognize how it could impact my relationship with God. But the good news is that even in the midst of that kind of overwhelming despair... 
God's love is amazing. God's love is forgiving. God's love is restorative. That as painful as Jesus' repeated questions were to Peter, they were an invitation for Peter to receive and to dwell in God's rich love. Even though it stung him to have to say, you know I love you, Jesus wanted to invite him to recognize what true love is, one that you can't author, but one that God has authored through this thing called the cross. Dwell in that. Rest in that. And some of you, you know this. You know this intuitively because you've lived it. If you've ever been so horrible and you've had to ask someone for forgiveness, especially a loved one, you know what I'm talking about because you've had to go through the process of knowing you have harmed someone. You have made someone feel horrible. Oftentimes, the closer relationship, the worse you feel, right? If it's a spouse or a kid or a parent or a family member or a best friend, you have harmed them. You have done wrong, and yet you've gone to them. You said, can you forgive me? And when they have every reason to tell you, no, leave, they said, I forgive you. I love you. Remember that feeling? Remember that feeling where you say, man, I don't deserve that. But I sure feel pretty good about it. I sure as heck know that I don't deserve that kind of kindness. But wow. Because love is not just going on the roller coasters and being happy all day. Love is when you know you have no reason for someone to love you. And they they, they know your sin, yet I choose to love you. I forgive you. And just like Peter, we realize that we cannot out God's love and forgiveness. That when we have fallen short, realistically, of who we are supposed to be and how we should live, that God's love shines. One of the, and maybe some of you struggle with this lie. One of the lies of the enemy is that when you have fallen short, when you're not doing well, maybe you're even sitting here today and you know you're struggling with sin. One of the ways that the enemy lies to you, Satan, is to say, get, away, get as far away from God as you can. There's no way you should get close to this God. You know how you've lived this week. You know how evil you've been. You know how duplicitous you are. You know how phony your righteousness is. Run from God. Don't you dare go to that church. There's no way. And Satan, that's one of his scheming lies. Because the truth is, the gospel says that in your sin, instead of running away from God, you run to God. Because he alone has the power to forgive and save and transform you. It's what the great preacher Charles Spurgeon described when he said, the master magnet of the gospel is not fear, but love. Penitents are drawn to Christ rather than driven. I love that. That ultimately what draws us to God is deep love. A love that we know we don't deserve, but that he offers us freely and generously. But it was not free to him. It cost this thing called a cross. It cost great suffering that he took upon himself that we would not have to. And he gives us and he invites us to receive that. And we know that Peter got this because in Jesus' questions to Peter, we also see what dwelling deeply in God's love led to for Peter. What did he say? Jesus said, feed my lambs. If you love me, feed my lambs. If you love me, tend, tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. What he's saying is that love always expresses itself outwardly. That if you do love me, Peter, if you do get this, if you receive my love, now go minister to others. Now go love others generously. Now go feed them. Now give everything you can. And we see that Peter got that because his life was changed after this. He went nuts in a good way. And he went to as many people as possible to tell them about the good news of Jesus. And it reminded me as I think about us here at the village, man, 
I want to be part of a church where we are just so like out fighting each other to try to be kind to one another. That we like, like there's no room for generosity here because so many people jump into situations. That we're the kind of church when someone new comes in, maybe they've been far away from God for a while. They don't even think God exists, but they walk in here and, and they don't just see a clique who's about ourselves, but they see a people who believe so much in this God who would give himself to us that we give ourselves to one another. And they're just floored. Even if they don't believe the crazy preacher up front, they see love lived out in the people. You know, as I dream about the village, as I dream about us, that we would never become a holy huddle that's consumed about us, that's about maintaining a religious organization. But we're always thinking, Lord, as you move in our midst, would you send us out into our city? Send us out into the world. Send us out so that we can exhibit and to communicate and to show your great love for a broken, rebellious, sinful people. I mean, sometimes those are the dreams that I have as I fall asleep. Thinking about that. That's what the kind of communicate, church community I want to be part of. But guys, that will happen. I mean, it, I think it will only happen as each one of us experiences deep love of God for ourselves. Just like Peter. When we experience what it means to receive this deep love, even as we're sinners, and receive the forgiveness of God, that's what motivates us to say, yeah, I'm busy, but I'm going to give myself to people who need it. Yeah, I'm worn out, but I'm, I'm going to serve. Yeah, you know, I don't have that much, but I'm going to be generous. Yeah, you know, I could use this night to kind of binge on Netflix, but I'm going to take that phone call from someone who could probably use it. Ultimately, the Christian life is not about doing it because that's a good thing to do. It's about being amazed by God's amazing love for us and say, if he's done that for us, I guess I'm supposed to share that with everyone else. Bow your head with me. Now, let me ask you to stand with me as we respond to the word this morning. And I'm, I'm going to just give you a few moments to pray right now. If you could bow your head with me and however that looks like for you. I mean, we all probably pray in different ways, but whatever that looks like for you. Can, can I invite you to receive this gift of repentance But the gift of repentance, it's got to start with us acknowledging the God's deep love for us as sinners. And and can I invite you, not not in a way of judgment, not in a way of finger pointing, this is just you and God. But can you be honest before God right now and let his spirit convict you? What are some areas of sin in your life? Maybe for some of you it is very blatant. You know what you should be doing and you've just said whatever. Can you confess that? Just lay it before God. For some of you, maybe it's a little bit more subtle. Maybe you are a good person. You're very moral. You're like a model citizen here. But maybe the Spirit is unearthing areas of pride, self-righteousness, control that are not of God. And could you humbly confess that before the Lord? So can I invite you right now, take some time to do that. Again, this is why it's called good news. This is not a finger pointing, all right, you measly worm, get your face on the ground and think of every nasty thing you've done. It's, if you're a Christian, it's actually acknowledging, wow, look at how I've jacked up. But look at how much God loves me. It's astounding. It's astounding. And rest in that. 
If you're not a Christian, could I invite you today to say, I I never knew this was what the Christian faith was. I thought it was about being a good person. What this guy seems to be saying is actually about saying, "I I can't be a good person. I need Jesus. If that's you, receive Jesus today. Say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness of my sins. I want to follow you. Thank you for showing me I can't do it by my own strength. But I need to confess it's because I couldn't change myself. I need you. And follow Jesus today. If that's you, let us know. We'd love to talk with you more. Let me pray for us. Lord, help us, God, to be honest with our sin. Not in an introspective, focusing too much on ourselves, But Lord, starting by looking at you. And that when we get a right glimpse of you, it would put our lives into focus. And God, show us how much we need you. Lord, for some of us, maybe we've been doing this a long time, we actually have gotten to a place where we don't really remember why we need you. Help us, Lord, soften our hearts. For some of us to have sin that we clearly know of and we've been unrepentant, soften our hearts. And Lord, we bow ourselves before you. For some of us, maybe we don't recognize it. Soften our hearts, Lord, to recognize areas where we have lived apart from you. And God, invite us into the deep, deep love of God. Invite us into the deep, deep pursuing, magnificent, unending, never satisfying love of God. And that we would rest in that today. So take a minute with me right now. Just pray. Take a minute and pray and then we'll introduce ourselves into the Lord's Supper. But I want to give you some time to sit on this for a little bit first. Take a moment to pray together. continue to pray i want to invite you if you if you are ready you can come up to receive the lord's supper and what that is it's remembering the broken body of jesus that he willingly gave for those who would all scatter and deny him yet he shared his body he told us to remember him in that way and sacrifice and he he commanded us to uh, remember his shed blood that forgives our sins that we as sinners, we need forgiveness. And he offers that. So if you're a Christian, I would invite you up during this time to come up both aisles, take a piece of the wafer, dip into the cup right there. Remember the great love of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to take some time on this. Maybe not come up today, but ask God to be known by him. Let's respond.